Half Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Dracula from 1958. Adapted by Jimmy Sangster from a novel by Bram Stoker, directed by Terence Fisher, and released in the United States as Horror of Dracula to avoid confusion with the 1931 film by Todd Browning. This film is one of the early entries in the Hammer Horror Cycle, a series of increasingly loose adaptations of a variety of gothic horror novels that had been previously adapted by Universal Films in their famous Universal Monsters canon. As I've mentioned on occasion, nostalgia tends to move in 30-year cycles, and so the late 1950s was the perfect time to launch a revival of films that were popular in the early 1930s. Film technology had advanced tremendously in those intervening years, allowing studios to produce a version of the Dracula story that was less stagey, and of course, set in bright, vivid color that showed all that nice red blood. Hammer didn't exactly pioneer the gore picture, that's usually credited to Herschel Gore. Lewis's movie Blood Feast, but they definitely made a quantum leap forward from the relatively bloodless horror of earlier eras. This is technically the second film in the cycle. The first, The Curse of Frankenstein, was released a year previous and also featured most of the same cast and crew, but it's really the one that put Hammer on the map for the next decade or so. It updated the Todd Browning original with a lot of energy and what was, for the time, pretty unabashed sexual chemistry. Although there's nothing overtly erotic about the offense on screen, there's no nudity, for example, pretty much every actor is playing the relationship between vampires Empire and human as a fundamentally seductive one, which audiences in the ostensibly repressed 1950s responded to. And because it was a British production, it wasn't subject to the Hays Code and could go further with both sex and violence than its American contemporaries, although Hammer did perpetually clash with the British Board of Film Classification. And it's worth mentioning before we get into the cast that this film really helped to create the market for British media imports that we see today. British film and television had access to a number of elements that created huge amounts of production value virtually for free, whereas in America, studios had to spend massive amounts of money to recreate crumbling old castles and hire classically trained Shakespearean actors with posh accents, these things were all readily available in the UK with very little effort or expense. Most of the actors in Dracula wound up with long careers making genre pictures for export to the United States, as we'll see once we start discussing the who's who of this movie, and things like BBC America really kind of owe their existence to Hammer Horror in no small way. And speaking of the cast, where better to start than with Sir Christopher Lee, who plays Dracula in this film and in almost a dozen other vampire movies. This was pretty much his breakout film, although he had been acting since the late 1940s. His most notable previous credit was as The Creature in Hammer's 1957 Frankenstein adaptation. He spent most of the 1960s and 70s trading on his fame here, playing a number of vampires either named or inspired by Dracula, as well as doing some extremely racist Yellow Peril adaptations of Saxe Romare's xenophobic Fu Manchu stories, which he played in yellow face makeup, which was unfortunately seen as unremarkable at the time. 
Although he tried to get out from under his two most infamous villains by doing roles like James Bond villain Scaramanga and Lord Summer Isle in the cult classic The Wicker Man, the 80s and 90s saw him reduced to a character actor and cameo role in genre productions, until the one-two punch of appearing as Count Dooku in the Star Wars prequels and Saruman in Peter Jackson's epic adaptation of Lord of the Rings returned him fully to the public eye. He enjoyed a late career renaissance that allowed him to, among other things, record an album of heavy metal Christmas music before passing away in 2015 at the age of 93. Playing opposite him as Van Helsing is Peter Cushing, Lee's lifelong friend and frequent cinematic nemesis. Like Lee, Cushing also parlayed his Hammer Horror roles into a lifelong career of playing either cold and sinister intellectuals, like Baron Frankenstein in Curse of Frankenstein, or avuncular professors who study the supernatural forces of darkness in order to better combat them, like in this film. You can see those twin influences in virtually all his subsequent roles, from his cinematic Doctor Who and from Sherlock Holmes, all the way up to Grand Moff Tarkin and his role as an SS commander in Shockwaves. Sadly, he was never the same after the death of his greatly beloved wife, and retired from acting in 1986, finally reuniting with her in 1994 after a long and storied career. It's hard not to feel as though those two are by far the most important actors to come out of this film, but there are some other major characters on display. Uh, Michael Goff plays Arthur Holmwood, whose role in the film is greatly expanded from the one in the novel, and he had nearly 200 credits in film and television dating back to the 1940s. He was in the extremely interesting genre-adjacent film The Man in the White Suit with Sir Alec Guinness, about a man who invents unstainable clothing and is targeted by the detergent industry as a result, and he did adaptations of Pride and Prejudice and Orlando in the 1960s. He was an uncredited Emmerich Belasco in the adaptation of Richard Matheson's The Legend of Hell House. He was infamously the celestial toy maker on Doctor Who, although that character wasn't explicitly Asian, he was coded as such, and unfortunately this is considered today to be another example of Yellowface, and returned much later for a guest appearance as a Time Lord in the Peter Davison years. And yes, I'm burying the lead here, he was Alfred the Butler in the 1989 Batman movie and its sequels. Much as everyone now thinks of Cushing as Grand Moff Tarkin and Guinness as Obi-Wan Kenobi, this particular British actor will always be remembered for calling Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer, and George Clooney Master Bruce. John Van Eysen plays Jonathan Harker here. He didn't act much more after this, moving to the production side of things, first as a literary agent who sold novel rights to film studios, and then as a managing producer and studio executive for Columbia Pictures' UK division. Eventually, he became their worldwide head of production, overseeing virtually all their films not made in America, and according to IMDb, he established the Chelsea Film Festival in 1991 before passing away in 1995. Which is odd, because the Chelsea Film Festival was founded in 2013 by French actor Ingrid Jean-Baptiste, so there's clearly something going on here I don't understand. Either the current Chelsea Film Festival takes its name from a prior one, or there's an error in the IMDb biography, which can definitely happen. Carol Marsh plays Lucy Holmwood, Arthur's sister. She has a number of film and television credits, including the title role in the 1949 adaptation of Alice in Wonderland, but she's far better known for her extensive work in BBC Radio, where she's estimated to have done better than 100 radio plays. 
She retired in the 1980s and passed away in 2010. Melissa Stribling plays Arthur's wife Mina, whose role is sadly far diminished from the part she plays in the novel. Bram Stoker made her a proto-feminist who's far quicker to catch on to Dracula's plans than any of the other characters, and who plays the crucial role of collecting all of the disparate pieces of evidence together into a single narrative that proves the vampire's threat. Stribling was a fairly regular character actor in film and television during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, popping up in shows like The Avengers, William Tell, and Ivanhoe, but this is probably her signature appearance. She died in 1992. And two lesser but still significant characters are Olga Dickies Gerda and her daughter Tanya, who was played by Janina Fay, although here credited as Janine Fay. Dickie made several appearances in British film and television, including the film Picnic at Hanging Rock, before her death in 1992. Bulfay was very in demand as a child actor and kept her career going all the way into the 1970s, doing adaptations of things like Little Women and Tom Sawyer. She was also in the 1963 version of Invasion of the Triffids. It's been about ten years since we've gotten one of those. We're probably about due for another. The film opens with a relatively lengthy credit sequence for a movie of this era, with the credits spelled out in a blood-red gothic font over shots of the crumbling battlements of Dracula's Romanian castle and bombastic music composed by James Bernard, who supposedly started by pronouncing Dracula's name as dramatically as possible to get the recurring three-note motif. The camera heads down the darkened halls and into a crypt, finally closing in on a stone sarcophagus with the name Dracula written on it. Blood splashes ominously onto the letters, telling the audience with a single vivid image that this isn't going to be the old-fashioned universal version of the vampire myth. It's going to be bright and vivid and, by the standards of the day, gory as fuck. We then cut to Jonathan Harker, narrating into his diary his journey from Klausenberg to Castle Dracula to take up the post of librarian. The geography here doesn't follow Stoker's novel and seems to be a little bit loose in a lot of ways. Most of the towns and cities referenced sound German, and it's stated that Dracula crossed the border only once on his journey to visit and wreak revenge on the Holmwood family. But Germany doesn't border Romania, so it's not entirely clear where everything is supposed to be taking place, and the fact that nobody really tries for anything other than a British accent only confuses the matter further. Dracula's castle lies on the other side of a mountain river, which means for a start that we're definitely ignoring a lot of vampire mythology. The legend that vampires can't cross running water is actually much older than their supposed vulnerability to sunlight, which was an invention of F.W. Murnau for the movie Nosferatu. Harker is greeted by no stewards, servants, or retainers, only a cold meal laid out for him and a letter welcoming him to partake. The letter and the crest above the fireplace have the motto Fidelis et Mortem, which according to historian Penelope Goodman is actually terribly mistranslated Latin, but which was probably intended, according to her best interpretation, to mean faithful even with respect to death. As the night draws in, Harker is greeted not by Dracula, but by a woman in a sheer pink dress, who asks him for help in escaping from Dracula's clutches before fleeing as the Count himself arrives. I think, given what we learn later, that this is merely a ruse on her part to get close enough to him to drink his blood. Certainly she does seem to be under Dracula's influence and control, but she's already one of the undead, sorry, spoilers, and when she does meet Harker again, she's much more interested in biting him than in anything else. 
Now, Lee has an immediate screen presence as Dracula that instantly makes it clear he will not be beholden to Lugosi's iconic interpretation of the role. He doesn't attempt a Hungarian accent, he's not wearing the evening dress that audiences would have associated with the 1931 film, although he does wear a simple cloak, and his height and no-nonsense demeanor establish him as a man who won't be trifled with. But he's not rude, either. He greets Harker, shows him to his rooms, and lays out the task of cataloging the castle's books in a plain and straightforward manner before leaving for a journey that will take him the majority of the next day. He's elegant, not cruel and not baroquely gothic in the uh, Lugosi fashion. Presumably his trip is just a cover for his needing to go out, feed, and then sleep in his coffin. Harker unpacks, taking out a photo of his beloved fiancée Lucy, and Dracula admires her beauty, even smiling, a rarity for Lee's performance, before leaving and locking Harker in, or more likely locking his vampiric minion out. Harker takes the time to catch up on his diary, writing that he's finally met his intended target, and when the sun rises again he will search out his crypt and put an end to the vampire's reign of terror. Which, if you're going to start messing with Bram Stoker's original plot, is a really fascinating change to make. Harker in the original novel is honestly something of a himbo, a pawn in Dracula's grander schemes whose primary purpose is to facilitate Dracula's journey to London, and who barely survives after the Count has no more use for it. Although he does come into play late in the novel as a heroic figure, he's really overshadowed by Mina and Van Helsing when it comes to the good guys in the book. Here, though, he begins as Van Helsing's friend and confidant, and he's got the nerve to deceive his way into the vampire's lair with the express intention of hunting him down and killing him. It's a really exciting twist on the classic story. Unfortunately for Harker, he's lured out of his room by the female vampire, who unlocks his door and allows his own curiosity to compel him to come out and explore. The two of them meet in the library, where she once again entreats him to help her escape from Dracula. But when he chastely takes her in his arms to comfort her, she opens her fanged mouth wide and bites him on the neck. There's kind of a running theme in this that infidelity of any kind, even the most trifling of infidelity, opens you up to predation by supernatural forces. This is not, as is often stated, the first film to feature vampires with elongated canines. That would be 1952's The White Reindeer from Finland. But it is the film that popularized the idea in the cultural consciousness. Not a lot of people saw The White Reindeer. Harker pushes her away, but at that moment, Count Dracula bursts into the room with his eyes blazing red and his fanged mouth stained with blood. This is the iconic shot of Lee that they use in virtually every documentary about him, about vampire movies, about hammer horror, about Dracula. This is the shot. He drags his minion away from her intended prey, then hurls Harker aside when he tries to intervene. It's a performance of calculated physical power and dominance that directly and dramatically contrasts his earlier controlled charm. There's a very real sense that this is the true Dracula, and everything we've seen of him up to now has been a deception intended to hide his bestial nature. And with his true self unveiled, Dracula carts off his vampire slave, leaving Harker in a semi-conscious heap on the floor. Harker awakens in his own bed, with the sun already low on the horizon. All too aware that he probably won't survive another night in the castle, he decides to seek out Dracula's crypt, racing against time to kill both vampires before the sun sets and they awaken to their full power, although not before recording what happened to him in his diary in order to ensure that Van Helsing knows that his final wish is to be staked if he should wind up turning into a vampire from the earlier bite. He does in fact find the crypt, but makes the fateful decision to stake the woman first, giving Dracula time to awaken from his slumber. 
Now, a lot of people have criticized this decision, but I think there's a certain logic to it if you don't know that Dracula is the officially recognized worst villain ever in the canon of vampire lore. Dracula hasn't tried to harm Harker yet. While the female vampire, who's not named in the film but who is played by Valerie Gaunt, has attacked him and thus by the rules Van Helsing later establishes, may be able to exert some kind of direct control over Harker. He's taking out the most immediate threat instead of the biggest one, which turns out to be a mistake, but may be an understandable mistake. On dying, the female vampire ages into decrepitude almost instantly. Presumably she becomes her natural age, which explains why the vampires don't all turn to dust the way Dracula does at the end. Sorry, spoilers. And Harker goes to Dracula's tomb, but he's already gone. He's standing in the doorway, in fact, and he closes the door behind him to cut off Harker's escape. The scene cuts to black, giving us the ominous sense that Harker has in fact failed his mission in the most terminal of ways. We then cut to Klausenberg, where Van Helsing has arrived looking for his friend. The innkeeper, played by George Woodbridge, pretends not to know that Harker ever even came through the town, or why he has garlic flowers strewn over every surface. But a young waitress named Inga, played by Barbara Archer, slips Van Helsing the diary of Harker that was found at a crossroads. Presumably, Harker smuggled it out himself after reanimating as a vampire, although he was unable to take direct action against his new master. On reading it, Van Helsing heads straight for the castle, but he's too late. A hearse carries away Dracula's coffin directly past him, almost running him down. After a hasty search, Van Helsing finds the frame of Harker's picture of Lucy with the glass broken and the photo torn out, and then goes down to the crypt where he finds a vampirized Harker waiting for him. With no choice, Van Helsing is forced to stake his friend through the heart. Needless to say, this is another huge departure from the original story, and one that makes anyone familiar with the original, or with previous adaptations, feel like nobody is safe from Dracula's power. Mind you, much of his role in the story will be taken up pretty seamlessly by Arthur Holmwood, Bram Stoker really wasn't writing a deep character study, and it's possible to just transfer all of his events over to someone else. But nonetheless, the name Jonathan Harker is so iconic in the lore of Dracula that it's a real shock when he's killed off at about the 30-minute mark. Even if you didn't know the original, it would be surprising. Up until now, he's been our viewpoint character, and it's been reasonable to assume he would be for the rest of the movie. As with Psycho and A Nightmare on Elm Street, there's a lot of mileage to be gotten out of taking the one character everyone assumes to have plot armor and bumping them off in an unexpected moment. Van Helsing returns to... Germany, maybe? Czechia? Hungary? Wherever it is, he goes back and tells the Holmwood family of the death of Lucy's fiancé. Arthur Holmwood finds the whole thing incredibly suspicious, especially since Van Helsing is more than a little evasive about the details of Harker's death. But there's little he can do beyond asking the man to leave his house. And he's already got a lot on his mind. Lucy's anemic to the point of being bedridden, a sudden illness that came upon her in the week or so since Jonathan's death. And of course, it comes as no surprise to anyone in the audience that as night falls and she flings her windows wide open, Lucy is visited by Count Dracula himself. This is one of those moments that really sells the sensuality of this new post-universal Dracula. When Lucy opens the windows and lies back down on her bed, she has a look of anticipation on her face that is simultaneously very shy and very excited. 
Not to put too fine a point on it, she looks like a virgin bride on her wedding night, ready to finally consummate her relationship with her husband and see what all the fuss is about. And even though she's wearing an outfit that's anything but revealing, the whole sequence is incredibly, potently erotically charged. And it ends perfectly with an shot of the open window, leaving the audience just as teased with anticipation as Lucy herself. One thing I think is incredibly significant, by the way, is that Lucy takes off her crucifix before Dracula enters. It's not just a question of practicality, something that demonstrates the vampire's hold over her. They've already got the scene where she locks the doors and opens the windows for that. This is symbolically her turning her back on God in order to have this dalliance with her vampiric lover, a man who is not her fiancé, the man who killed her fiancé. And I feel like it really is a telling glimpse at the alternative sexuality that this film is depicting. Meanwhile, Van Helsing goes over a series of phonographically dictated notes regarding the weaknesses of vampires, which fills the audience in on the rules of the franchise without needing to belabor the point in conversation. Also, it's kind of neat to see one of these old phonographic dictation machines, which are slightly anachronistic for the period the film is set in, but given everything going on with geography here, I'm not unduly concerned. It's also worth remembering that all these films are made well after the Victorian era in which the film was set, and eventually anachronisms do creep in, simply because we get further and further away from that time period, but you can't do a modern updated Dracula because the character is so famous, so infamous, that the idea of having a scene set in the modern day where someone introduces themselves with, Hi, I'm Count Dracula, and nobody remarks on it, just breaks audience's brain. Just as he's dictating a note saying Dracula must be destroyed, we cut back to Lucy, welcoming the visit from her undead lover. The next day, Dr. Seward, played by famous character actor Charles Lloyd Pack, laments her lack of progress, apparently not noticing the series of massive bite marks on her throat that appear fresh every night. Mina, concerned for her sister-in-law, goes to visit Van Helsing and asks him to inspect Lucy in his capacity as a medical doctor. Van Helsing, recognizing the symptoms, prescribes garlic flowers absolutely everywhere at all times and no fresh air or open windows no matter how much she begs. Mina complies, but Gerda the maid ignores her instructions when Lucy says she can't breathe properly and clears out the offending blooms. That decision proves to be the death of Lucy when Dracula returns the next evening and bleeds her dry. When Van Helsing comes back in the morning, Arthur blames him for Lucy's death, not fairly, but certainly understandably. Gerda confesses to removing the garlic flowers, and although no one chastises her, she immediately understands that the responsibility for Lucy's death falls on her. Van Helsing, for his part, decides to bring Arthur into his confidence, and leaves him with Harker's diary so that he can discover the truth from someone whose voice he will trust implicitly. Three nights later, Gerda's daughter Tanya is found wandering the grounds, claiming that Lucy came to her and asked her to go for a walk. Arthur, his suspicions roused by Harker's diary, goes to visit his sister at her crypt but finds her missing. And not long after, she returns, once again bringing Tanya for a little late-night snack. Arthur's only save from joining the list of victims when Van Helsing shows up, cross in hand, searing the vampire's forehead with the symbol of his faith. Now ready to believe the truth of things, he allows Van Helsing to stake her through the heart and end her undead sufferings. 
The staking is a bloody, visceral affair that must have been intensely shocking to audiences of the day unused to that kind of cinematic violence. And you can certainly see its influence on later films like Toby Hooper's Salem's Lot. Van Helsing explains that Lucy's death is a form of revenge on Dracula's part for being deprived of his slave back at the castle. He's determined to take a replacement, and draining Lucy seemed like a fitting punishment for Harker's part in events. He also gives a little bit more vampire lore, explaining that we won't see any biologically impossible, and cinematically expensive, transformations into bats, wolves, or mists happening. The two of them agree to go to Ingstadt on the border between dot 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 question mark and shrug emoji, to meet with the customs agent, played by George Benson, and determine where Dracula's coffin was delivered. A little judicious bribery gives them the address, 49 Frederiksstrasse, but just as he says it, we find a young street urchin delivering the message to Mina that her husband is asking her to meet him at that exact same spot. It appears that Dracula hasn't given up on his revenge just yet. Now, I don't think it's an especially hot take to suggest that horror works best when it symbolizes a deeper emotional fear beyond simply... I do not wish to be eaten by a vampire, thank you very much. And in this case, what works so well about this sequence, and indeed the back half of the film, is that it personifies a lot of anxiety couples have about losing the affections of their partner when they take them for granted while someone else love-bombs them. Mina is being symbolically, as well as literally, left at home while Arthur prioritizes his work, not realizing that his neglect will have very real consequences that are tied to the serious business he's pursuing. Dracula's victimization of Mina is portrayed in no small part as an emotional affair, a framing of the relationship between vampire and victim that will carry on all the way up to present-day movies like Jacob's Wife. Sure enough, Mina goes to Frederikstrasse and finds Dracula just emerging from his coffin, which has a cross on it, a curious choice for a vampire. She doesn't return home until the next morning, acting suspiciously evasive about her whereabouts and wearing a fur stole tightly around her neck, but Arthur doesn't really notice her odd demeanor. He's too focused on work to pay attention to his wife, and she very clearly notices his lack of concern. In fairness, Arthur and Van Helsing are leaving to kill Dracula, which is pretty important, but his coffin has already vanished from the Undertaker's. Miles Mallison gives a charmingly over-the-top turn as the Undertaker, proving that the jovial corpse handler isn't just a modern archetype. They begin making plans to hunt the Count down, but all those plans change when they give Mina a protective crucifix and it burns her palm. Realizing that she's Dracula's next target, they plan a stakeout. No pun intended, and watch the house from the bushes all night long in a plan to catch the vampire when he next comes to feed. But as it turns out, bum bum ba, the vampire is coming from inside the house! Dracula has secreted his coffin inside the cellar, with Mina giving strict instructions to the household staff not to enter, which Gerda of course doesn't dare disobey after what happened last time she didn't listen to the mistress of the house. Van Helsing and Arthur go back inside to find Mina on the point of death. A quick blood transfusion from Arthur saves her life, which would have been risky in this particular era, but not impossibly anachronistic by the standards of the time. There's actually a lot of blood transfusing going on in Stoker's novel as they attempt to save Lucy. Puzzled by Dracula's seeming ability to evade detection, Van Helsing and Arthur finally get the truth from Gerda that evening, but just a little too late. 
Dracula is on the move again, heading back for the border with the kidnapped Mina in tow, and the two men are forced to give rapid chase. They catch up to the Count, who can only return to the castle as he needs to lie in his native soil, that's one bit of vampire myth they did take, just as he's attempting to bury Mina alive, and Van Helsing chases him through the castle in a scene that really spotlights Cushing's own physicality as an actor. Usually Van Helsing is portrayed as an older man, the brains to the rest of the vampire hunting group's brawn, but Cushing was barely 40 when this movie came out, and he's happy to play the man of action here. It's really a lot of fun to watch him sprint and struggle with Lee in a very action-packed sequence. Especially when they get their hair messed up, Cushing and Lee are both so immaculately well-kept actors that it's almost a special effect just to see them get disheveled. The sun has risen by now, but of course Dracula's got most of the windows blocked. But Van Helsing manages to pull down a curtain in the library and then puts two candlesticks together into a makeshift cross to force Dracula into the shaft of sunlight. This is another one of those iconic shots that turns up in just about every documentary as Cushing slams the two candlesticks against each other as almost as though he is physically pushing Dracula back with the force of his will. Dracula falls back into the sunlight and dramatically, fatally crumbles into dust. Unfortunately, this sequence was heavily censored by the BBFC, and originally featured a shot where his face melted off to reveal a mask of blood. You can find clips of a somewhat fuller version on YouTube, uh, but unfortunately, the only print that survived the censorship was a Japanese version, and that was heavily damaged, so nobody actually has the full version available that audiences would have seen in Japan, or that people would have made. It's a shame. It really is. The mark of the crucifix on Mina's palm fades as she and Arthur embrace, and the dust blows away from Dracula's signet ring as the credits roll in a shot that so transparently and blatantly inspired the ending of the 1980 Flash Gordon movie that I half expected Ming the Merciless to pick it up. Boy, we do keep coming back to unfortunate and xenophobic yellow peril stereotypes this episode, don't we? Anyway, it's a very conservative ending. Not conservative in our modern political sense, but in a more general and social sense of the word. The traditional order is restored, the husband and wife are freed from the unnatural and corrupting influence on their marriage and relationship, and the outside evil is once again banished. And if Mina might secretly harbor a few wishes to be bitten again, we're certainly not going to hear about it. And will I hang on to this movie? Oh, for sure. It's brisk, it's pacey, it's got two great performances from two of the genre's legends at the peak of their talents, and it's just a fun and breezy rendition of the Dracula story. Even the things that are a little bit shopworn, like the treatment of Mina and Lucy as appendages in a very male-centric story, aren't really built up with enough deliberate misogyny to do more than elicit a little mild disdain for what audiences of the 50s had to put up with. And Dracula gets a pretty darn good melting scene. That alone is worth keeping it on the shelf. And if you want to talk about melting vampires, bored housewives, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter at, at @halfhorror and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as Half Price Horror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, we're getting pretty deep into October now, and I thought it might be a good idea to revisit some old haunts. 
let's go back to Woodsboro and see what became of Sidney Prescott and her friends in the eleven years since Scream 4. I hear there's a whole new crop of teenagers in town, with a legacy connection to the classic horror movie of a generation ago. I bet it would be interesting if they ran into a brand new ghost face, one who was determined to recreate the story of Billy Loomis and get it right this time. In fact, I think it would be a real scream. See you then.